Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Robert Hollingworth here in York today. Down the line, Nicholas Mulroy, tenor, thinker about art. Bach, passion evangelist, purveyor of fine quality Negro sums, and fan of most things Central and South American. Morning, Sammy. Morning, Robert. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Yes. Now, look, this episode, um, it, it, it's been it's been bo- on the boil for a while, but it started in my mind with an Alexandra Cochlan tweet about having to review yet another slow-moving, slightly smulchy call recording. Doesn't anyone write fast-moving choral music anymore? She said. Um, But at the same time, we had a note from composer Bernard Hughes in this wise. I'm Bernard Hughes. I'm a choral composer and advocate of us composers writing more fast, lively, rhythmic choral music. Uh, There's plenty of the slow, rich, sensuous stuff around, and I've written my fair share of that as well. But I also feel there could be more variety, uh, both for the sake of audiences, for the sake of performers, uh, to give them a different challenge, and also for the sake of composers themselves. As a composition teacher, I spend a lot of my time persuading my students out of the middle ground of range, of dynamics. And I think tempo applies there as well. By going for faster music, you can uh, find new responses to text, new ways of exploring the rhythms that are naturally in texts. So today, we're going to look at fast choral music. What are the good bits? How does it work? What do current composers think about it? But um, first of all, Sammy, would you do the honours? Certainly. Welcome to Coral Chihuahua. (laughs) Coral Chihuahua. Nice. Nice. It's our new jingle, specially recorded by Standard Deviation, a young vocal jazz group that I've uh, had at Stour Music and whose rehearsal I popped into last week. Um, uh, more from them in another program, but goodness, they're good. Uh, Sammy, any any? If I say to you, fast music, have you got any appalling memories of concerts where the music was too fast? You, you, I don't need to tell you that I'm a inveterate rusher, and so that when when music is fast, I do this slightly unhelpful thing of getting even faster. Um, I feel like certain pieces of early bird run out of control quite easily. Um, yeah, Bernard's right, isn't he? The the sense of uh, composers easily go when they're writing for choirs, and and I think voices more generally easily go to slow and lovely, don't they? Um, and it's it's good been good to prepare this and look at what they do and how they do it when they go for something a little bit more up tempo. Yeah, I think we all we all know why, or at least we all think we know why. Interesting to hear from a few of them today. Mm. Um, I mean, the practicality of singing fast is, I suppose, another another app altogether. But today we're going to touch on a lot of short sections of fast moving music, and that's that's a truth that there don't seem to be movements which are fast for a long time in the way that often slow music is is slow for a long time. That's right. So this is a, this is a podcast about fast moving music, and it will be a fast moving podcast. Before we start, I wanted to break down exactly what we mean by fast, because we think there are three to four elements in this. 
Uh, first one, notes moving fast while the harmony moves quite slowly. The second one is when the harmony moves fast. Seems quite rare, that one to me. The third one is text moving fast. And lastly, but not leastly, texture moving fast, which often is a combination of fast harmony and fast text. Right, the first of those then, notes moving fast when the harmony moves slowly. Um, composers work this out quite early on, that as long as the ear is only having to cope with one chord, you can hear quite a lot of fast-moving notes around that. Here's a bit of Monteverdi from Book 8, if I just lean over to the piano here, where the harmony is just going... But the voices are going... sort of thing. Um, or uh, actually name that tune, Sammy. If I play people this harmony, I wonder, well, it actually could, could be almost anything. Anything run to mind? Well, I mean, it's Fly Me to the Moon, isn't it? Or I Will Survive. But... <laughs> Very good. Okay. It's also... That's right. It's the only note, notable influence of Gloria Gaynor on the music of Bach. But it, it always feels like an incredibly frenetic moment, that. But actually, things moving moving quite quite, quite um, slowly, harmonically. Your favourite piece of fast music in, in that sort of style? Uh, I, I was thinking about this. I mean, now that you mentioned the B minor, it's, Bach is the master of that, isn't he? Of, of the kind of, it's a sleight of hand where you think it's all moving really quickly. The beginning of the mag, for example, is is actually very slow harmonic movement, but incredibly exciting because of the melodic stuff. So maybe let's say that, can we? Yeah, yeah, good. What's yours? I, I have a sort of, that little bit of Monteverdi, we recorded it very early on back in 1989, and it's very, very low for the soprano. It's quite a peculiar thing to do. Mm. And the sort of terror of, of trying to get that to work has stayed with me since. So I think not necessarily in a good way, but Monteverdi Altricanti d'Amore. There's a, there's a lovely recording. Is it Dunedin's? I think it might be with Mari Lawson and others doing a phenomenal job right down that low in the range bit. No, I think it's Lézard Florissant um, was part of their Monteverdi series, which is your man Paul Agnew. Um, yeah. And, and uh, Lissandro on bass, who's an, an incredibly agile Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's that's that it it's it's very very hard to sing, but actually musically very very easy. We'll come to it again. But fast music can take a long time to write, but I think not in in the case of Altecanti d'Amore. That um, I remember giving that to Matthew Matthew Brook to sing when he came to to or asked him to prepare that when he had his fancy audition in '93, and he just sang it no problem at all. And I thought, oh, okay, can't have been very hard then. What do I do now? Yeah, where where is he now? Eh? No. These are fiercely hard to sing, really, but there is a gorgeous sense of fluidity in them if they're done well, despite being what BBC singer, soprano and Fagellini Rebecca calls uh, Rebecca Lee calls the semiquavers of failure. And uh, most choral singers will know his yoke is easy, which is a Handel's little joke. It's a very funny joke um, in making easy extremely difficult to sing. Mm. Um, here's, an, here's an a cappella example. Uh, Monteverdi again. Um, I'm a young girl and I laugh and sing in the new season. Thus sang my sweet shepherdess, at which my heart responded like a merry little bird. I too am young and I laugh and sing in the sweet, beautiful spring that blossoms in your beautiful eyes. But she said, nah, mate, run away.
classic recording from the Consort of Music there, the sound of Monteverdi, secular music as I knew it as I was growing up. Now, composer Roderick Williams makes the point that when we as singers are learning fast music, uh, once we start to understand not just our part, but its relation to the harmony that it's part of, we often find that it's not so difficult, at least to get our heads around it, which is always part of the game. Let's move on to number two, please, Bob. Number two is music in which the harmony moves fast. So not runs of fast notes, just fast-moving harmony. Now, this this really seems to need a lot of processing power from the listener to follow the harmony around. So it's, it's really harder work. And almost as the proof for that, in looking for examples, I couldn't find ones where this happened for more than a very, very short time. So I'm going to start with an extreme example, um, which is multi-track. This is not choral. Uh, this is Jacob Collier, all sounds made by him and layered over the top of each other in the recording studio incredibly skillfully. Um, the advantage is that a lot of us will recognise the tune, thanks to Roderick Williams for the suggestion of the Flintstones. So you can focus on the sheer number of other things that are going on here, from very fast-moving harmony to rhythmic changes. <laughs> Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're a modern Stone Age family. Stone Age family. From the town of Bedrock, they're a place right out of history. Let's ride with the family down the street. Throw the car to see your friends to feed. When you're with the Flintstones, have a yabba yabba dabba sort of play a piano music um i mean yes he's recorded every note and it's all in his head but could anyone i mean could take six perform, perform that could six jacob colliers perform that it's like those piano rolls that are that you can program into a piano but no one's ever actually expected to play he's like oh, cornelius cardew and uh, nan caro nan caro right. exactly yeah it's extraordinary isn't it? i i wonder if anyone's ever i mean it's sacrilegious because he's so lavishly talented but is anyone ever, ever said to him, Jacob, do you know, maybe less is more here? Like it's kind of, no, he, throw, he, throw, he, he throws everything at everything, doesn't he? And that, that's an example of the, the music isn't, the tempo of the music isn't fast. It's just Flintstones. But the, the, all, the, all the kind of musical material that's happening is kind of maximalist, isn't it? And um, like you say, the harmonic movement is, it's even with that level of precision and production, it's really tricky to, for a listener to follow. It, I mean, it's, e it's easier for a listener than to do it. I keep going back to oh, that. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't worked out the meter at the opening yet. You think it's going to be, but, 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 but there's an extra quaver in there, um, which just which just throws you. I mean, I I adore listening to it and just trying to get my head around it. So I think it's good to have a, a tune you know. Um, well, let's listen to a more normal choral setting. Yeah. Um, so this is this is a more traditional. Um, combination of sort of fast accompanying notes and slow harmony, but some fast, also fast bursts of harmony. This is Poulenc's Marie, uh, and this is a Fagini. Is it a live recording, Robert? Not live. Uh, we did this in a church in South London. Um, I've chosen this one, obviously, because it's me, but it's because it's the, the only recording I could find that was close enough so you'd have a chance hearing the text. Right. This is generally done for choirs. Uh, he wrote it for a, for a choir in the 1930s. Um, but again, and we're going to come back to this, mm. in, it's recorded generally in big buildings and it's hard to hear the text. Mm. 
setting of Apollinaire there, memories of, of, of Marie. Um, but as we were just saying, listening to it, the harmony is mostly quite slow moving. Bing, ba 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 bum While just occasionally you get seven or eight chords moving very, very fast. I remember those bits took us ages to practice. And when I was sitting in on standard deviations rehearsal on Sunday, they were saying just how much time they have to do that so that they have a sort of melodic feel to it as well as a part in a vertical chord. So you choirs out there spending ages on what seems like quite a short um, you know, passage, we, we feel your pain. It is tricky. Yeah, that's, was, that's one of the reasons, isn't it, that it's less common. I mean, what, putting programmes together, I'm always, always spoke for choice for slow, lush music and you have to really often look hard to find some stuff to, to give, you, give you some variety. Um, and I think one of the problems is that it's it's just really hard to, firstly, to get it right, but also then to make sense of it musically and uh, rhetorically or textually, if that's the right word. Well, let's let's go straight into that. Um, and a thought from, from Joanna Marsh, um, composer you and I working with yesterday, uh, on music in which the text moves fast. At least that's our, our section. And she's going to talk generally, but she'll come on to that. When I think about fast choral music, I generally think about fast text delivery rather than inherently fast pulse. And if you're working with a text that goes by really fast, then um, you need it to be intelligible. And the problem with choirs is that they generally perform in generous acoustics because that's going to make the sound more beautiful. It's going to make it glow. So the moment you get further back in the room, you're likely to not be able to hear the articulated text and the words clearly. And that's the principal thing that people complain about with choirs anyway. So you're just going to have a mush and uh, it won't be successful. And I've had this as a personal experience with writing things. So my inclination would always be to choose to look very carefully at the venue where, where um, the performance is taking place and if one is being commissioned to write for say young people and it's a dry acoustic then perfect it can be fast and they will love the driving rhythms and the general mouth workout and the ticklishness that is speaking or singing at a quicker rhythm than normal and a quicker tempo um, otherwise there's always that sort of sense of danger it might not quite work so she talks about, you know, if the performance is going to be a dry venue, that's quite a sort of composer worldview, isn't it? Because, of course, the piece uh, is going to be performed in all in all sorts of, of, of other acoustics. Um, uh, that's just tough, I suppose, isn't it? It's just, you know, Bach isn't worrying about that anymore. I, I, I'd like to posit the question, though. It's not just choral music. I mean, in what pop song recorded close to a microphone in a nice dry studio do you ever actually hear the text? I'm not sure that's totally fair. It's a lot of music to sweep across, isn't it? But the but but, but with 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 pop music and and also uh, spoken text in films now, it seems to be almost deliberate to be mumbling because mumbling is expressive or to half speak because to declaim is not natural. If you're looking for a natural form of expression, um, and so yeah, I, I, I think I, I don't think it's, we're doing. We should be beating ourselves up about it as as choral singers necessarily. No, I, I was thinking. Uh, Slightly tangentially, I was thinking about hip hop. Irony of a middle-aged white man talking about hip hop, but he it that the music for that tends to move harmonically quite slowly. It's based on samples and stuff, but the, the text can be both incredibly quick, it's sort of dexterous, and incredibly clear. 
so there is the there is a sense of of like the urgency of a message being delivered i think of p- people like dylan and sort of um more socially aware singers where the, where the text is actually in some ways the thing rather than the music um i think that's worth thinking about yeah, I, I don't think I don't think anyone's suggesting that that you can't ever hear the words. It's just that when someone's coming some, back to something for the ninth or tenth time, the audience is going to know the words. You know, you see at a pop concert, the guy pointing the microphone up to the out to the audience, and and they sing it back at him because it's so well known. So that's I what suppose we, that's that, what happens at all Fudge concerts, obviously. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> obviously. Um, and and I suppose then it's up to the audience to follow the text in a program, assuming it's been printed by the performers. Quite often, it's quite difficult poetry in that uh, Poulenc set, the set chanson. There are poems by Éluard that are slightly impenetrable. I mean, they're always told they're sort of, well, what do you make of them? And I'm, I have my own views on something, but they're, they're, but what what if I'm wrong? Um, I mean, in, in one way, it's streaming services have completely failed on this because they only provide the sound and encourage us to treat vocal music as, as sound. So is the text as much there to inspire the singers and composer? In a minute, we'll hear from my colleague at University of York, Steph Connor. But first, part of a movement that would have been on a lot of our minds when thinking about fast choral music. <laughs> was uh, a section of Rejoice in the Lamb by Benjamin Britten, sung by the Finzi Singers, conducted by Paul Spicer. Now, that is quick, and it's pretty clear with the text. I mean, obviously, the choir's working really hard there. I don't think it's my favourite piece of Britain. I think that is filed in... Um, my learned colleague Stevie Farr is not a fan of Britain, and that would be, a, um, that would be in his file for um, evidence for the for the defense i think if if you're going to if you're going to look at it as uh i mean we could talk about the word setting and why he's done it that way and then you could talk about the pleasure that choirs have singing it and i think one of the, the reasons is, is what joanna's just mentioned that feeling of ticklishness by the leopard to the all turn contra critis spear he's deliberately setting setting it wrongly these are poems by christopher smart That's 18th right. century uh was he put in a in an institution an asylum yeah and 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 wrote uh, and wrote some quite strange poetry. For I will consider my cat Geoffrey, for he is a creature of the living God. Um, mm. I don't know whether Britain was deliberately setting it in an odd way to somehow reflect that. I think we'd had different views on that in mental health these days, anyway. But um, it is something that choirs love singing. But I think part of it is just they like to sing something fast. Finally, I mean, you remember being a chorister when there was something jolly and that you could let your head and didn't always need that kind of self-control uh that's that's a great pleasure yeah exactly and and also the sense of it being fast and sounding difficult but actually not not being terribly difficult i think is always worthwhile there's a virtuosity implied but actually it's not terribly tricky no it's um it, simple f major just back what we were saying it's the same chord just f major through that let's hear from a colleague of mine steph connor uh, and i asked her the question because i said have you got any fast music we, we could look at she said no i've written, never written a piece of fast um, choral music and i said why 
Well, I, I, yeah, I do wonder why I never write fast choral music. Um, I suppose composers are drawn to the choral idiom for all kinds of reasons. And in my case, the attraction of writing for voices is um, the opportunity to respond to or um, engage with words that I find particularly moving or arresting. Uh, so in other words, it's the power of emotionally affecting verbal expression that makes me want to write vocal music because the contours of sung language feel like a kind of beautiful, sometimes transporting expansion of spoken language. And I guess when that language is unintelligible or on the brink of being unintelligible, I'm less likely to be moved by it myself, so I find it hard to imagine why someone else would be. And I guess that must be why I rarely set text much faster than what seems to me like natural speech rhythm. And I think of it more as a heightened way of speaking than as a tune or set of harmonies with text added. Actually, I love to sing fast music. In the folk band that I work with, singing fast vocables is all about imitating and trying to keep up with instruments, which is fun. And we also sing a short song in Latin that repeats and gets faster and faster until it's on the edge of being kind of ridiculous. And that sort of thing can be super entertaining to do with choirs as well. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of pieces like Chack by uh, Stephen Hatfield. But it's another kind of rhetoric entirely. Um, it's about creating an atmosphere and energy that I think is quite unlike text-dominated music. And in a way, the absence of text and therefore the absence of discernible meaning or the transition, if you like, from something in which meaning is intelligible into something in which sound and energy have usurped the supreme power of meaning, um, it's that that makes the performance engaging. I seem to be in the process of deciding to write some fast choral music now. I've sort of convinced myself that it's going to be brilliant. Go Steph. I love that. We look forward to the result. Here's a piece, quite short, just a short section of it as well, about a way the falcon surfs on the wind. It's not a terribly popular piece with choirs. It's Michael Tippett's Wind Hover, set in Gerald Manley Hopkins. And the thing I love about it when I'm singing it is because you can do it with just four voices as well, is the way that it's it seems to be steady and then it moves and then it just drops in the way that a bird surfs the wind. And I think he catches that absolutely wonderfully. And also he keeps the text very clear. I'm sorry, he keeps the texture very clear by, of the four lines, one of them is just, uh, the tenor is doubling the soprano quite a lot of the time and the bass is doubling the alto. So the basic idea is just two-part counterpoint. G give us the beginning of the poem. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dapple dawn-drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off, forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bowbend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing.
So just a, a small section there. I remember recording that um, with the Fancy Singers back in the 90s. Apologies for using two tracks of theirs in a row, except they're the ones that seem to have got the speed right um, for the Britain. All the other recordings I listened to seemed to be quite ponderous, which I, I didn't think was the point. Um, you heard that piece before? You know the Tippet? No, it's new to me. I'm a I'm a big fan of Tippet, and I remember being at a, um, a talk by Oliver Soden, who wrote a brilliant biography of him a few years back, and he was saying that one of the reasons he's not done so much is that his music is just difficult. It's it's incredibly virtuosic for the performer. It's difficult to listen to, and it's not as kind of hospitable or friendly for a listener as Britain's, for example. And Britain's success with audiences is much more. Uh, extreme than tippets, and I thought just thought it brought me back to something Steph said, which was about meaning and about the way that an audience kind of receives textual meaning. You know, how many times have you told someone to slow down when they were speaking in public? And actually, in order to get text across, especially when there's more than you know, you know this better than anyone, where there's more than one person singing, we just have to work so hard on the text, and part of that is giving it the time it needs. And actually, often in this music, for an audience, the music ends up less less friendly to receive, really, because it goes by too quickly in terms of semantics. And because time is, is often short in, in rehearsal, well, actually, for this kind of concert, you generally have a little bit more time. Um, you know, Is there that time taken in understanding the poem? The second half of it uses some quite unusual vocabulary, which, which Hopkins does. Um, I just do think the slightly unsettled and fleeting and then stopping way is just a glorious representation of a bird. And then I suddenly started thinking of another bird. Did you have a bird thought? No, I was just thinking that it, it it's, a, again, Steph's note was brilliant because it, she talked about meaning being not just textual and that it's the, the, the imitation of a bird's movement is quite sort of painterly in a way in, in, in that tippet. That's all. Right. Let's get into texture, which was our fourth point. We've done text and now... Uh, texture. I wanted to, when asking around, a lot of people mentioned the Briton and a lot of people mentioned Ravel, the third of the Trois Chansons Ronde, which I don't do very often, mostly because it's just the French goes by at such an incredible, uh, incredible speed. And, you know, I, I adore French, you know, 20th century music from the first of 50 years. There just isn't very much of it. So it's a shame not to do this um, more often. But look, here's a French choir. It's a slightly odd close up. Recording, but these I think are children on the top line. It's the Ensemble Vocal Philippe Caillard, um, and it's uh, it's quite something. <laughs> just looking at the text for that it's a huge text and I'm just just imagining Ravel looking at this massive poem I don't know whether he was asked to set it it's a sort of fairy story really don't go into the Ormond forest n'allez pas au bois d'Ormond jeune garçon n'allez pas au bois young boys don't go there because it's full of all these weird things and then it finishes up saying don't go in in fact the misguided old women and the misguided old men have chased them all away they've ruined our fun um, sung that no, it's new to me that I don't know at all. I love Ravel, but I don't know 
much of his choral music at all. I think a lot of people listening will have had a go with that one. And sometimes people just do the first, the first two. Nicoletta la vipre is the, the first one. Then there's a beautiful uh, soprano solo. It's about the bird of paradise, l'oiseau du paradis. Um, but that's that's interesting the way he writes it because of the texture, because he keeps it. It's really only one thing happening, which is one fast line, sometimes in thirds with, with the alto. And then the tenors and basses just pop in the odd chord so you know where you are harmonically. But textually, that's a very clever way to do it. But I don't think there's any sense that you could really hear the text. Um, and I'm talking to Joanna of this recording last couple of days, uh, Joanna Marsh, about how careful she is with text and taking out the odd consonant here in one of the parts if it if it gets in the way of the overall me- meaning, especially when the, the text is being carried by a lower part and she doesn't want the sopranos to get through. But that's, that's I mean, it's a very clear sort of pianistic type of texture. Yeah, you can sort of hear that he was always called a, a, a Swiss watchmaker, wasn't he, Ravel? You can hear the kind of joins of the mechanisms, can't you? It's very, very well crafted without being something one would necessarily return to very often. Let's uh, look at a composer inspired by Ravel. This is Vaughan Williams, and this I think he's 1950s. It's the last of his Shakespeare songs, which is a similar sort of thing for an English choir over here. Avail through Park, through Park, through And this is the Swingles. It's an old recording, Swingle 2. Very close, Mike. There's a nice film on YouTube of them doing this at a TV studio. Uh, with Molly Simpson, I think, on the top. Um, Anyway, yeah, let's hear this very short track of a similar ilk. Swingle 2, I remember listening to that in my teens. It must have been newish out there. And of course, that's what you can do with a microphone. The, the, the master's a microphone technique. Sing it super soft. The, un, the lower parts not getting in the way with their fast, um, with their words. I mean, that's the thing. When do you need to mumble the text? Because otherwise it'll get in the way of perhaps what the top voice is doing there. Yeah, with the one trick I, we used to do, it was to basically hum and put the words on the top, which is a really nice way of making the making the texture both textual and accompanimental uh it's but it's a tricky one isn't it because if you have the if the background texture is full of r vowels then you you're automatically gonna be drowned out aren't you well we well i mean we could get onto the whole i mean we don't compose but uh we could get into the whole technique of doing this why la and da is a very very bad accompanimental sound because it masks other vowels where whereas ooh and that kind of thing works better um, I wanted just to play a short movement by Daniel Lazur from his Cantique des Cantiques. Um, this is ni- uh, 1953, so almost the same year as the as the Vaughan Williams. This is 12 voice, and the clever thing about this, it's one of the, the fast-moving movements of this sensational set that you could listen back to, actually. Um, we're told we need to, to remind all the listeners that there are another 46 episodes of this thing that you can go back and listen to, and there's a whole one on this um, Daniel Lizier Song of Songs settings that are just absolutely magisterial and one of my favourite <clears throat> 20th century pieces of choral music. And this one is a, is a strange, I mean, it's called Le Songe, The Dream. Um, I thought it was the and, monkey. <laughs> Twit. Singe. <laughs> Serge. Um, and I think the clever thing here is that although he's got 12 voices, He's using them really clearly as just four textures, sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses. The tenors have very little to do in this. The basses have a rather odd, deliberately displacing harmonically thing to, to, to show this dream, something not quite right state. Um, the text is carried mostly by the altos, I think, and the tenors hardly have anything to do at all. It's very skillful manipulation of texture. 
that is Le Songe from uh, Daniel Lazur's Cantique des Cantiques, sung by Ifa Jrini, directed by my colleague here, Robert Hollingworth. And you are one of the tenors, tenors with not very much to do in, in that movie. Typecast again. Now, now, both of those pieces are, you know, that of Vaughan Williams and the Rebel. You could say they're sort of chordal. I mean, it's manipulation of it and things around the edges. But the, uh, although it's fiddly, uh, it's basically chordal. What about you, if you have fast-moving polyphony? I think that's the, the bullet we've been avoiding so far. And, and asking uh, colleagues about this, two pieces of bird came up. Laudibus in sanctis at the proper speed, said Greg Skidmore. We could easily pay that, but we're not going to because, because people will know it and you can look it up. It is often done quite slowly, Laudibus. Laudibus, but I think it can, it can... But the thing is, Laudibus is basically a piece of chordal writing with one voice ahead and one voice behind some of the time. So it has a, an impression. It's polyphony, but not as we know it, Jim. It's, it's sort of chordal. And, and I wanted to play uh, Vigilate, which is quite a different thing. It's quite high energy because it's proper polyphony mm. most of the time. Although Bird, like Palestrina and others, is very good at just popping a few chords in to settle things here and there. But this is counterpoint. Everything with the same sort of melodic line joined together to create a web. Again, listening uh, recordings is most quite slow. Uh, I found a Voce's 8 one that's quite fast and we'll hear the, the opening of that. Birds Vigilate, sung by Voces 8, with the text saying, basically, be aware, keep your wits about you, because we know not when the Lord comes, he might come suddenly, which is what we hear from that last bit of repente text. And the implication being that this was for Catholics in the 1580s, uh, to practice as a Catholic, incredibly dangerous, when the secret police, one of Walsingham's lot, would be knocking on your door, finding you, and taking you straight off to the tower. Uh, so it's a double, double reading. We recorded that on a disc called the the caged bird back in the 90s one of those uh, recordings with period pronunciation which you and your colleagues slagged off want to add anything to that i just thought it might be time to hear from another uh, composer uh, this is gerald francis hode when you're writing fast moving choral music you've just got to be super aware of all these sort of common sense things that 
should be in your head all the time anyway. But, um, you know, I mean, badly written, fast-moving stuff and just sound like a mush, you know. So thinking of... <laughs> The parts have to be super idiomatic, I think, you know, so so the intervals don't get lost and the harmony doesn't get lost. Um, yeah, you just have to really bear in mind your feedback loop of sort of practicality, idiomatic writing, inspiration, excitement and all that has to be, has to just be on, you know, full speed, um, full dial or whatever. Um, yeah, and also I, dealing with words, I mean, I find that quite difficult. I find if you repeat and repeat words... It can start to sound a bit sort of twee, so that's another consideration, I guess. Um, but obviously you can't churn through the text because nobody will understand what you're on about. Um, yeah, I guess like all kinds of music, if you if you really keep all those factors in your mind at the same time, um, it's really great. And if you don't, it can be awful. So what she's saying is, do it well, <laughs> to sum up the, th- the summary of the summary. Yeah, we did a, a piece of hers um, l- earlier this year uh, with Dunedin called Gaudi et Letare, which which I think qualifies this. I've spoken to you about that, and and it's it's brilliantly done because the the text is really clear, um, rhythmically it's very very exciting. Um, it's it's not easy, and harmonically there's a sort of bitonal thing going on, which is tricky to tune. Um, but it's you can hear from how she talks; she she knows whereof she speaks here, and I think she's. Um, that's a worthy addition to the fast music conversation. Let's go back um, seven centuries. Let's let's go right back. Let's hear a little bit of um, Guillaume de Machaut. This is the end of his the Gloria from his Notre Dame Mass from I don't know thirteen fifty something like that. And when music's you know the notation here is something that I think most of us couldn't make any sense of now. I think you know you would have to be trained then. Um, but there is an extraordinary piece of what I think I call hocket, hocket writing. It's not proper hocket, but it's that kind of style. Hocket from the French hiccups, where usually where the line jumps between two parts. So it'll be jumping between two singers, jumping from one to another. Here it's just very, very fast level um, uh, syncopation. But because there isn't a constant beat to it, you can't quite hear it. We're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to hear it um, sung by the Hilliard Ensemble. And it's worth saying that there are recordings by French groups of this piece that make a possible connection between uh, the singing style of the 14th century, relatively closed book as that inevitably is, and currently existing folk styles. It's very attractive when it starts. You can look up, for example, Marcel Perez and Ensemble Organum, famous recording from 1996. It's very characterful and folky, but it does come, in my mind at least, a bit unstuck at this Amen because because the Amen requires incredible rhythmic clarity for the syncopation to speak. Or maybe that's just my taste. Anyway, here's the Hilliard Ensemble, very much a British group, having a crack at it, uh, with a fabulous baritone Michael George singing that very rhythmically animated baritone part. Lest you were slightly confused by that, let's hear a version that my colleague Jacob Ewan's put for me on a sort of um, E harpsichord yesterday, so you can hear the exact what's actually going on there.
funky town. Take take me too. I mean, what hope of anyone singing that together? It reminded me at the end of the Benevoli, um, the Benevoli Crater that we just recorded, which there's a choral chihuahua on five episodes ago, um, in which uh, the meter is so unsettled and the performers there would have been so separated that they couldn't really concentrate uh, on on the whole picture. They would just have to do their own bit. I think it's interesting to think how they made music then um, and with a uh, hand on a shoulder and all tapping the pulse together seems to be one thing from the iconography, whether it goes back quite as far as this, I don't know, but whether you would have heard it in those acoustics. Part of it is about how voices perhaps have changed as well in the, the, the agility and the speed at which they're operating there is something that we don't really recognise from probably the the last 250 years or so when when volume and kind of resonance has been much more to the front. I've got a number of people who would like to talk about the positioning of the larynx and all that kind of thing um, in this. Uh, but yeah, and we're also back to the semiquavers of failure uh, as well. Um, we should sort of wrap up. Um, we had other things that we ought to do. But maybe perhaps people can go back to that benevoli Tuez Petrus Credo and, and listen to the last two minutes of that, which is so unsettling, which is a different kind of fast. We're back to the Jacob Collier fast, trying to take a lot of things on at once. And we wanted to play the Liberias. Um, from the Durfle Requiem, where the organ's going, we did say we wouldn't include pieces with orchestra in today. Otherwise, we would have just been looking for another excuse to play the Bach Gloria from the Lutheran uh, F major mass. <laughs> but um, for, a, for a, um, a wild card to finish, and remembering actually this piece is 50 years old, here's a short section from Robert Heppner's Del Jubilo del Core. This is a piece I've done with the Netherlands Chamber Choir. I think he wrote it in the 70s, uh, along with something called the, the Canti Carnaleschi, the carnival songs. Really interesting composer. And uh, I mean, the whole piece is 13 minutes long. I think we're only going to play a couple of minutes of it. But what he does here is he has something seemingly, seemingly free. It's 16 voices. The poem is about the, the jubilation that you feel in your heart. But he does a clever thing, just bringing in some super simple harmony. So you've got that to hang on to while while things uh, go around it. I, th- I think you can only buy this as a CD. I don't think it's on uh, on any of the streaming services. Um, we had Adrian Williams. We had all sorts of other things. Perhaps listeners could write in with with other suggestions. And uh, folks do write in with uh, with things you'd like to to talk about. Um, Next week, we're going to be talking, I think, about uh, menopause. Aim's going to be talking to Charlotte Dugan and Ginevra Williams about singing with the menopause and singing uh, with an older voice. And after that, we're going to have a Christmas episode, which will be our 50th. How on earth has that happened? Sheer bloody mindness, I think. Certainly not long-term planning. Uh, but s- stay with us. Um, Sammy, any final thoughts on fast music? Well, I was just going to ask you what your what conclusions we might draw, if any, from this kind of little exploration i think you can't do everything at once you have to make your choices i was talking i was saying yesterday you know why isn't there a short ride in a fast machine for choirs um there are you know what are the really well we we touched on some of the successful and some of the less obvious fast pieces today but i think the composers um well actually we haven't played roddy we should just quickly before we hear this piece by robert hepner (laughs) Just get into Roddy's point of the whole thing. So uh, I won't sum up. I will just hand over to Roddy and see you next time. Hello, it's Roderick Williams here, just saying a couple of things about writing fast music for choral voices. My first point is a very um, slightly glib one, actually, uh, just that it takes a long time to write fast music in terms of the amount of seconds it takes to perform. And I remember John Taverner saying, I think it was John Taverner saying, when he wrote The Lamb, that it took less time to write it than it does to perform it. And that's a very good equation, particularly if you're being paid by the minute, incidentally. Um, But you can spend hours um, writing lots of uh, very quick uh, notes and then uh, a choir sings it in just a few seconds. And uh, that always seems like a a duff return. But the other thing is that, uh, particularly in singing, uh, it takes a while for um, harmony really to come through. I learnt this with my a cappella pop group, the Balfour Chorus, uh, then Voice Traffic. Um, it's just that you really have to work hard to make harmony sit uh, uh, well. It's difficult sometimes to pick it up and hear it properly. Um, so that's why um, uh, in in complex harmonic 
music, and I'm thinking of maybe Unaccompanied Poulenc or something like that, um, it works best when you have um, the, the, the chords really establishing themselves. And this is difficult to, to, to achieve at speed. You sometimes get this feeling that you're skating over ice. And of course, it, with singers, if you're dealing with text, when text is going quickly, then it's a little bit difficult to hear, which is why scat singing, again, thinking of the Balfour Chorus Day, scat singing, you can do quickly. But um, for people to comprehend text at speed, that can be a little bit difficult. And I suppose that's why a lot of choral composers, particularly today, but in the past, a lot of choral composers today favour slow, spacious music, um, uh, you know, best recorded in lovely cathedral acoustics. That doesn't really do very well for fast music at all, does it? I think it's time uh, for me to bring that piece out again. I did it with the 24 a few years back. Enormous fun for the choir, which, as we've been saying, is part of the point uh, of fast choral music and not quite as tricky as it sounds, in fact. Now, last thing, London types. Eve Angelini has a terrific concert coming up on December the 8th at St. Martin's in the Fields, Trafalgar Square. Angels and Demons, uh, promoter seems to have renamed it, in fact, Angels, Shepherds and Demons. Uh, Bach, Monteverdi, but more intriguingly, a Neapolitan pantomime from 1672 and a naughty Chakara from 1750, in which the devil is shot up to the air and comes down hopping mad. Just Google Evangelini events or St. Martin in the Fields, December the 8th. And if you do come, uh, please come and find me afterwards and tell me that you heard about it on Coral Chihuahua. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via choralchihuahua.com. Thanks. <laughs>